You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters.
grown up in a nominally Christian family and uh, didn't have any questions about God. So at that point, I gave my life to God and began trying to understand what all that meant and read the Bible. And um, but it, but it was soon after that. I mean, it really did change my life in a very positive way. Uh, rather than just relying on my friends uh, and and for what to do with my life and falling for peer pressure, I could stand on my own and make my own decisions and think my own thoughts. So it was a very positive thing in my life. But I soon began to, as I would read, would read National Geographic or other or books, and uh, when I would come across skeptics, uh, a lot of my friends could seem to ignore the questions they asked, but to me, they would tend to throw me into a time of, of questioning and doubting. I mean, I felt like that my uh, trust in my religious decisions was based really more on the intellect than something going on with my feelings. I, I distrusted my feelings because people could, people around me would fall in love with somebody and just know that was the right person for them, but then it would turn out that they weren't for each other, and I'd say, well, then how did you just know? And so I distrusted my feelings of where some people would say, I just know God's there. For some reason, I never had that big of a feeling or I distrusted my feelings. So I had to really think through each issue on its own when people began to criticize God and the Christian faith. So that's really where apologetics began for me. I was not planning on teaching in this area or teaching philosophy or writing or anything. Uh, my, my quest was to find out, is there really evidence enough to believe in the existence of God? What can I know about him? If he is there, how do I serve him? And that drove a lot of my undergraduate and graduate study through the years. You know, I happen to agree <coughs> with a lot of that. I know there are some people who have some very great experiences out there. And I don't want to discount that. But at the same time, there are people like you and me who don't have those great experiences. And yet we're still out here trying to serve God just as much. And I'm, I'm not one to say that any way is superior to the other. Even that's just that there are different ways. And there are a lot of people who will only be reached by someone who's coming from a more intellectual bent such and, you know I'm thinking C.S. Lewis once said that when your church goes out and you do evangelism and you have a team going out there let your arguers go forward first they will go and they will destroy all the intellectual roadblocks and then the people with the great testimonies and such can come forward and talk about the great things that Christ has done in their lives that's an interesting quote I'd never heard that one but I have a lot of respect for C.S. Lewis and, yeah, and I think that Go ahead. And, and I, th I think that what motivated me was, again, I need an assurance in my own heart. It, mm. it wasn't me trying to be able to out-debate others or outsmart others or anything else. And, and it was a very lonely search in a way because I didn't want to tell my believing friends I was doubting because I was afraid I would throw them into doubt. Mm. I think these days it's much easier to be able to talk to believers and say, hey, I'm questioning this, I'm questioning that because... Uh, there's so many people very open about their questioning, and uh, and I'd recommend anybody out there that is questioning, be open about it. Uh, as the person said to Jesus at one time, he said, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. 
and whenever Thomas came to Jesus and, you know, Jesus didn't condemn him for doubting. He said, hey, here are my hands, here are my feet, you know, uh, look for yourself. And uh, so I don't think we ought to feel any condemnation for being the skeptical sort. I think that God's made us for a purpose. Mm -hmm. I think it can be easier today in some ways because with the internet you don't have to go to your church where people might you might feel condemned unfortunately because many churches do give that impression but you can talk and you can find people out there who share a like interest and if you go on the internet there are plenty of people who really are interested in apologetics and this is one of the best battlegrounds for Christianity but the negative side is if you want to doubt there is more than enough out there to help with doubt and unfortunately a lot of it is just really bad nonsense out there that's masquerading as something rational I don't, I don't know if that's a tie-in or not to my latest book but I did write a text about a 450 page text called why brilliant people believe nonsense and it's all about that very thing is that during the information age, there's so much coming at us. Even when you take one issue like near-death experiences, there's so much coming at us that it's hard to distinguish the, the BS from the good, and um, that, that's a difficult thing in this age. Yeah, it, it actually wasn't a tie. In fact, I didn't know about the book at all until you said something. But let's go ahead and jump straight into near-death experiences. Now, many people out there probably know about the story heaven is for real and I, if you were listening at the start then I'm sure you were I I said that I'm very skeptical of the account I've looked at it I've read the book I've seen the movie I just don't think it adds up in many ways because I, I know a lot of rules for near-death experience interviews for one thing for instance you're supposed to get in touch with the person as soon as possible after they come out of the state. That's what Michael Sabom and others tried to do, and Carlton Burper's story came two years later. I mean, that, that's just the start of it. And so there, there could be people out there who are of like mind with me and say, you know, I think Carlton Burper's story just doesn't fit. But it'd be a mistake to go from there, though, and say, therefore, all such stories are probably false, wouldn't it? I think definitely, and I even believe that uh, his story might very well be real. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think, in fact, I talked to someone the other day. I still talk to people about their personal experiences uh, just over lunch or whatever because, I mean, studies have shown that 4% of the U.S. population, 4% of the people in Germany say that they've had a near-death experience. I mean, that's like one out of 25 people walking around us. So one, one of the things I encourage people to do is to start talking about these things among your friends and among your family. And if it didn't happen to one of these, it, there's usually a trusted friend of one of your family members. And, um, that you know, it's just very, it's incredible to hear their stories uh, first time. Now, now, the reason I bring that up is the last time I talked to someone, he had um, he he didn't really talk about his experience for some time after it, but there were reasons for this. And often, like in a child's case, they might not understand the just how weird and different that is, 
or they may, uh, there, there are a number of reasons that they might not share it. And for older people, they tend to not share it right off because they're kind of embarrassed and don't know what to say. So I think the Burpo story may be real, but if I, if I did not already, you know, at this point I'm believing in God, if I did not already believe in it, I would just say, hey, it's a pastor and his son and there's psychological reasons things could have happened. Maybe they're making things up. Hey, I don't know the people. So as a, as a naturally skeptical person, there's just no evidential value there for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I agree. I'm a naturally skeptical, and when I say I don't believe account, I should make clear I'm not saying that I think Carlton Burpo is being like dishonest or anything about his parents, or I, I don't know what exactly happened. I'm just really skeptical at this point. When you talk about people who've had near-death experiences, Immediately, some interesting people came to mind who are said to have. I think Plato talked about near-death experiences. Some or someone who had one in one of his works. I think C.S. Lewis is thought to have had a near-death experience, and even the famous atheist, the past A.J. Ayer, had a near-death experience. Interesting. He talked about standing before a big red light. I think it was who he was given to understand was the governor of the universe and still ended his email I think it's something like what I saw after I died to his atheist friends and said don't panic I still say there is no God which uh, I was thinking okay I'm not sure how you got to that conclusion after that but okay and the, these aren't just things that crazy people in such havoc. These are people from all branches of life, aren't they? Yes, they are. And, and this is not something that, like since 1975, when Moody published his book, Life After Life, that really kind of started people thinking about these. Um, you know, this, this, is, this is not something that a bunch of pastors grabbed on and tried to start using as evidence. I think the pastors have been some of the most skeptical ones concerning uh, near-death experiences because I think some are afraid that we're going to start getting new revelation that contradicts the Bible and so they've just been very skeptical and uh, so new age people started kind of taking off with these and interpreting it in their own way but yeah one of the very interesting things about this as evidence for God is that it's not something that Christians have been using and trying to do the research themselves and come up with reasons to believe in God this is something that developed in the secular world. It, you see it in nursing journals. You see it in uh, cardiology journals. And these are the cardiologists and medical people that are typically doing the research, which now we can look back over 25 or 30 years of research and, and gather from that research, what does this mean? Yeah. Before we start talking about the new revelation point, which I think is really important to discuss, let, let's be clear on one thing, just in case some people in the audience still might not be too familiar with what we're talking about. When we are talking about a near-death experience, what are we talking about? I mean, we're not talking about, say, someone being pulled from a fire just before an explosion takes place or someone get, getting caught in a near-car accident or something. We're talking about something very different, aren't we? Uh, yes, we are. We're typically talking to some about someone who maybe has um, almost drowned in the water, so they go down, and, and at some point, probably their heart has stopped, their respiration has obviously stopped, and then they're brought back. 
uh, one child in the Ukraine that I interviewed had uh, gotten caught in a snowbank, and so of course he couldn't breathe in there. Eventually, you're uh, basically comatose, but but probably more your heart is stopped as well, and you have to be revived. But today, and the, the reasons in the last part of the 1900s that we can study so many of those is because of the advances in resuscitation techniques by cardiologists and all medical people in emergency rooms. So you have people who who have had a heart attack, their heart is definitely stopped, they're not breathing, and it's called clinical death. So these people are basically dead unless they're revived. So they're dead for a period of time, maybe just a minute, maybe several minutes, maybe for a good length of time, and then they're revived. So uh, so this is what we're dealing with. We're talking about a near-death experience. It's not just that somebody is shot and said, oh, I almost hit that car. We're talking about somebody who's uh, in, in experiencing clinical death. Now, when you were talking with me about this, I had suggested you talk to Gary Habermas about some because he collects these kinds of stories as well. And he said that we've reached a stage where we're talking about death coming in stages. He said, but if there is a point that, aside from the act of God, there is no return. But there are stages of death where people have actually returned, and those are when we start having near-death experiences. Yes, and this is a very, it's, it's a very obvious question if you think about it. Like, uh, young Raymond Moody was growing up in a very secular household uh, here in Georgia, near Atlanta. His dad was apparently an atheist, a naturalist, a reductionist, produced everything down to natural causes, and he was a surgeon. And his dad came home one day and talked about a person who died on the operating table, and uh, they already had his chest opened up, and so he started massaging the person's heart, and it started back. Well, Moody, as a young person, his first question was, well, what did he say? What did he experience? And his dad said, well, obviously he didn't experience anything. Well, well, his dad didn't even ask because he's an atheist. I mean, when your heart stops, you don't have any consciousness. Your blood stops flowing to your head, and so, you know, nothing's going to happen. And so that's why it's so startling to some of these cardiologists uh, like Dr. Sabom at Emory uh, University, who was teaching there, and uh, Dr. Van Lommel in Holland, uh, in their practices, when they started finding people who were resuscitated, and some of them would say, oh, wow, I was very much alive on the other side. In fact, why did you bring me back? Here I am in all this pain and misery. I was in paradise. Mm -hmm. And so uh, now we can actually talk to people who have died and been resuscitated uh, and to find out what they had to say. How interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, when we also talk about the idea of new revelations coming from these kinds of events and such, I think it's very important to keep something else in mind. Gary says that near-death experiences, they can tell us things about metaphysics and such, but they cannot give us the furniture of heaven. They cannot tell us doctrinal questions or answer them. Would you agree with that? I do agree from my theological perspective. Uh, for some people who are more New Age in orientation, would that, that to them might be almost their Bible where they're getting the revelation from. So I think we've got a great divide here and a great caution that needs to be thought through. Um, 
you know, we believe that there's good and evil on the other side. And uh, I was just reading some of the people that were involved in LSD back in the 60s, some of the LSD studies at Harvard, and uh, and, and they were experimenting, some of them, to, to try to expand the mind and see what's going on out there beyond what we see in our everyday experience. My thought would be, well, hey, what, what, what if what you see is coming from an evil source rather than a good source? So... Um, to me, I'd very much distrust trying to get my theology, what heaven is like and what all these things are about, solely from something like this. Also, people lie. People make things up. Some people are psychotic, and then they have an experience like this. So I think you have to be very careful to not just grab willy-nilly any experience somebody shares and just believe it. Uh, that's why I try to concentrate on studies by doctors, by people, who are, who are talking to uh, many people over a period of time, uh, like people like Sabom and Van Lommel particularly, were trying to get people in the hospital setting closely after they've had the experience and to see what was actually going on. Because you can find experiences where people will say anything in the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, how, can we, how can we trust them enough to formulate some theology with them? You know, you talk about people are having these wonderful experiences and saying, why did you bring me back? Now, I don't think you talk about any in the book, but I, I do understand there are some cases that are quite opposite, that people have some experiences and they'd be saying, thank you for bringing me back, because not all these experiences are sunshine and rainbows, are they? Well, that's true, and uh, frankly, they kind of give me the willies, and I hate to even think about them. And I didn't go into them to study uh, what they call hellish experiences, the negative experiences. For a while, I think Moody and others ignored these and didn't talk about them because it was kind of embarrassing. Everybody wants to believe in angels but not demons. They want to believe in God but not the devil. They want to believe in good but not the bad. And... Uh, there are now, you know, it's well documented that a certain percentage of these experiences are very negative. In fact, one of the cardiologists in Chattanooga, Tennessee, who studied them, uh, he began to document these. He, he was having doing surgery, uh, no, they were trying to resuscitate someone, one of his patients, and the patient kept coming into consciousness and then losing consciousness. And he said to the doctor, he said, he said, listen, you don't understand. You've got to keep me alive because I'm going to hell. And and that sounds like some, you know, people that don't trust preachers, it sounds like a preacher's story or whatever. But this was his experience as a physician, as a respected cardiologist. And he said, somebody's got to write about this because these aren't all good experiences. I think from what I remember hearing from Gary about that, that, that doctor was actually an agnostic, and we had a team of nurses coming back to help this guy. And this guy's hair was standing on end when he came back, and then later on, the doctor wanted to go and talk to this guy and say, so tell me about this hair thing. I said, what hair thing? And he said, when you came back, you kept saying you were in hair and you were standing on end. He said, he said, doctor, I'm not denying that it happened. I'm just saying I don't remember it. And 
his fault with the doctor's fault of it was some people could have experiences that are so bad, so painful that somehow they block them out because they can't really think about them. Uh, yes, that was his theory, and so they may be more prevalent than we think they are uh, because of that. Also, some people, if they're being treated for some kind of illness and they're mm -hmm. on some kind of heavy medication, they may not be able to remember their experience after they've had it. So they might have said something right after the experience, but then later have forgotten it because their mind wasn't able to lay down memories because of medications. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then there are also the cases that I tend to think are really the most interesting. And these are cases beyond just where I died and I had a really good experience and I came back and, I, and I'm living a much better life now and such. And there's something to that. But the cases that really make me wonder and stand out the most are people who see things on Earth when they die that they clearly would not be able to see otherwise and that they could not have been told about because they say this right when they come out and no one else is there to tell them anything the, what we call usually the evidential cases and what do you think about those cases well I think that's a part of the big uh, that, that's one of the lines of evidence that leads me to think these are real experiences with the other side and not just some kind of psychological experience and some of the people who research these have have just listed. I've got in the back of my book, uh, Near-Death Experiences as Evidence for the Existence of God in Heaven. In one of my appendices, I'll list just a whole page of different ones that are not just near-death experiences, but they're near-death experiences with corroboration. So uh, some people will say to me, oh, well, they're just personal testimonies. It's just anecdotal. It means nothing. And I'd reply, well, wait a minute. If we took personal eyewitness testimony out of the courts of law, they'd virtually have to close down. I mean, we have ways of determining whether testimony is accurate or not. And uh, one of the things with the near-death experiences is that people have every reason not to share it. So if I'm not reading the people's experiences who are selling their own books of their own experiences, I'm sharing what doctors are telling, these patients tend to not want to share their experience because they're already in bad shape physically. If they start talking about some wild experience they had, they're risking being put in a psych ward or uh, who knows what you know people are going to think. So they have every reason to not tell their experience, and they tend to not tell their doctors unless somebody asks them point blank and says, hey, we're doing a survey here. We're front people, you know, have, did you have any experience when you lost consciousness? So, um, but yes, what the people are saying are things like when, uh, for example, one, one person that I talked about in this book, a patient underwent a risky brain surgery that required lowering her body temperature to about 50 degrees. Pam Reynolds. Yes, the Pam Reynolds case. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that's well written up in the literature. You can, um, Anyone can go read up on it, and, and people, re you know, argue for and against it. But to me, it was very convincing. Uh -huh. Had three primary tests that showed she was basically brain dead: a silent EEG, unresponsive brain stem, no blood at all flowing through the brain. All the blood was drained from her head. Okay, so she's clinically dead. 
if there's any consciousness left, it's just something extremely vague. There's there's no consciousness there. I mean, we know that from naturalistic studies of how the brain works. But when she came to, she told about things that happened during the surgery, what people said. She actually described some of the specialized instruments that were used by the surgeons. These are not the type of things that you would see on TV in a surgery. Uh, you know, her eyes were taped shut. She was deeply anesthetized. A hundred decibel clicks assaulted her ears over ten times per second. And, you know, her whole body was covered. How would she know this unless she was actually... The, the most reasonable thing to think is that she was outside of her body looking at these things. Yeah, I, I think I've even heard that. I mean, it, it's common knowledge that usually even surgeons are operating on a patient there. Can I have some lighthearted humor going on to kind of make it easier for them to work and such? And one of them had made a uh, very unfitting remark about Pam, I understand. Something bit, maybe even a bit sexist or something. And maybe vulgar, we could say. And she knew about it when she came out immediately. Yeah, it, it just makes sense yeah. when you think that some of the things they say, another thing, that, another thing that happens is people will meet someone on the other side that has died uh, while they were in a comatose state. They didn't know about it, and then when they were brought back, they talked about being surprised to find this person on the other side, and the people said, oh, we weren't going to tell you that Uncle So-and-So had passed away. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, when you have other knowledge, there, there are just several lines yeah. of evidence when you look at it. There, there are studies, not just of Todd Burpo, but studies of children. Children aren't thinking about writing a book or something. Well, why do their stories jive with the adult stories? You know, they just tell very openly what happened to them. And, uh, and then as a test, people will do, like Van Lommel in Holland, he did a longitudinal study so that years later... They would re-interview people to see, okay, are they consistent with their story? And the amazing thing is that these memories, as I talk to people, they are so solid memories that they're just, it's like it happened yesterday. They can just discuss it with that kind of vividness. It's almost like they can just replay it in their mind because it was set down as so powerful a memory. In uh, a book, it's called Memory, Jesus, and the Synoptic Gospel. It's Robert McIver studies memory in the time of Jesus and he refers to what he calls the flashbulb memories and these are memories of something so amazing so spectacular that you don't unremember really what happened because it, it just made such a great impact I mean uh, of course there can be some details that you might get wrong on a secondary level I have very vivid memories for instance of my wedding day that there, there are some things that are a jumble, though, also because I was so tense on that day and such. I, I'm going to know. I think, if I'm correct, I got an hour's worth of sleep that night, and I think I, that's an hour more than my wife got. <laughs> and then for people of an older generation, you can they can go with where were they when they first heard that JFK had been shot and nearly anyone else anyone from that time can tell you where we were. Today, you'd go and ask someone, where were you when you first heard about 9-11? I can remember very well 
where I was. I was a student at Johnson Bible College. I remember about the section of the chapel where I was sitting. It was actually in the gymnasium at, at the time, but we used it as our chapel. And I can tell you that we were getting ready to hear a speaker come that day. And in walked one of the professors who, this was right before 9 right? just to be in prayer because I just heard that a, a plane had hit the 9-11 tower, one of them. And at that point I was saying, gosh, someone must have been drunk entirely or something like that and thinking what a tragedy it was. And, you know, I still remember where he came from, everything. And then afterwards we were told that there was another hit that the other tower had been hit and from that time on everyone knew what was going on I remember vividly seeing no planes whatsoever in the sky the rest of the day and these are memories that I'm sure I'm going to remember for the rest of my life barring some some sort of tragedy or something happening to my memory and I, I would think near-death experiences would fit just in with that that's the kind of thing you just don't forget well, well, I would say yes. I think that gives you an idea that some things are so dramatic you don't forget them. But I, w I would say that in the case of a near-death experience, it's even greater than that. I mean, I'll talk to people who are in their 50s. They may have, have had the experience when they were a, ch a child, or they may be like 60s or so. And, and almost every, I think everyone that I ever asked the question, just how vivid is it, they say, oh, it's just like it happened yesterday. You know, it's just like they could replay that thing. It just set it down as such a powerful memory. And that's one of the most incredible things about this is that this has been studied pretty extensively. I mean, I don't think anybody questions that, number one, people have these experiences. Number two, that these experiences are not just real to the people, but they're realer than real. They'll use that phrase. I was sitting across from a guy that I respect. Uh, someone had told me about him. I, I, I know him, and I know he's got a good reputation in the business world, and um, you know, really nice guy. He said, "Hey, he never talks about this hardly, but hey, he may talk to you since you're studying it." So I talked to the fellow, and I said, "Okay, when you had this experience, and, and he had been in a long-term illness, in, in, in a kind of a septic shock type situation where everybody thought he was going to die, when he came to." He, um, he had had this experience where he had gone to the other side and talked to some angelic beings about the issue of whether he needs to stay on earth any longer. And I asked him, I said, well, just how real was that to you? I mean, is it kind of, uh, you know, like, like a vivid dream? And he looked at me in the eyes. I'll never forget it. A chill ran down my spine. He said, no, no. He said, it was real. He said, it was as real as me sitting across from you talking to you right now. He said, no, 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 it was more real than this. And I guess as a philosopher, that kind of made me sit back and think, okay, how do we know we're conscious? How do we know to trust what we see in the world around us? And how do we know we're not in a dream? And we'll say, well, this is more real than a dream. I mean, that's all we've got to go on, right? I mean, and so I thought, well, this guy is telling me that what he experienced was even realer than this. He said, nothing could ever convince me that, that this was anything other than reality. He said, I was there. And if you sit down and reflect on it, okay, I trust this guy. I trust some uh, one of my relatives who told me about an experience he had like this. 
I trust other people that I interviewed because I know of them. They're not liars. They're not trying to sell stuff with this. I, I believe in what they say. So I think I can look at them and say, you know, if I were them and I had had this, if I were me, okay, if I had shared that same experience that they had, you know what? I, I'm no smarter than they am. They are. I'm no smarter, uh, you know, I'm no more skeptical than they are. They're just regular people like me. I'd say if I'd had their experience, I'd be saying the same thing they're saying, that, mm-hmm. um, that I was there. I was on the other side, and there's no doubt about it. And that, that's what the great majority of these people say. Uh, I was there. And, and they, their lives changed long term to show that they really believe this happened. Yeah, I, I'm thinking about something Gary told me about. He said, whenever you encounter these people, some of the questions you can probably enjoy asking most are like, questions like, what were the colors like? What were the sounds like? And they might say, well, you know, the colors like, no. No, I can't tell you that because if I tell you that, you'll be thinking this, and that doesn't match. And the sounds of like, no, no. If I tell you that, you're just totally not going to get what it's like. It's things they they just can't even describe. Yeah, and that's one of the traits that Moody identified is is that people they they say what I'm going to tell you is the best way I can tell you, but human words just won't get across exactly mm-hmm. what I saw. They'll say, I was in a place where it's it, time seemed to stop. Now, I can't imagine what that means. I mean, isn't time measured by a sequence of events? Surely you could say this happened before. It doesn't make any sense to me. But they'll say, when I got over there, the most amazing thing was, it was like time no longer existed. And space was different. You could, you could see something far off as clearly as you could see it close and time and space were different so it's not the tight thing when I look at the experiences it's not what I'm expecting at death at all of course this was not a final death but these are things that people were not expecting and yes they and yet there's this cool consistency from person to person as to what they experience which separates it from dreams which separates it from hallucinations and, um, you know, what, are, what an exciting experience. I, I'd recommend to everyone, talk to your relatives, talk to people you trust, find out if any have had such an experience. And uh, it, it's, it, this is the most amazing thing I've ever studied. And I've studied throughout my life all kinds mm-hmm. of things. This has been extremely interesting. Yeah, there's also a story about a woman who was giving birth to, I think it was her fourth child, and something happened, and she died as it were, on the operating table and had one of these experiences and they brought her back and you know, you can think the bond of a mother and child is one of the strongest bonds of theirs. I mean, most mothers, as soon as they have that child, that child just becomes their world so much. It's incredible. It just it just grips them so much. And so you think it would have to be something pretty severe to replace that bond. And we said, well, did, did you really want to come back? And she said, you know what? I knew my husband was a good man. He could take care of the kids. I mean, that's how much this woman wanted to stay over there, even more than being with a new child that she just had. Mm. 
Yeah, yeah, that's it's a pretty incredible yeah. It's a pretty incredible life-changing experience. And uh and I do want to emphasize the people. This is not something that a bunch of Christians came up with to defend their faith. Right. Over the um uh, over the 30-year period after Moody published his book Life After Life, and that's that is a good place to start by the way. Um reading that book but in that 30-year period after that, 55 researchers or teams have published at least 65 studies on over 3,500 NDEs, and that's not even considering the last 10 years or so where there are even more of these in nursing magazines or, or peer-reviewed journals. They're in, like, Psychiatry, The Lancet, Critical Care Quarterly. Uh, you can just over 900 articles were published in scholarly literature prior to 2005. So this is something that's been well studied. It's a great thing for people to go in and research. And it not only gets your head, um, a, a person who is an executive in a large investment company called me one day. He had heard an interview with me, and he wanted to meet me for lunch in Atlanta. And um, he said, he said, you know, listening to you talk about it, it was not just that it hit my head, but it, it touched my heart. And I think what he was saying is, you know, here are people, some of them who never felt love, ever. Uh, there, there's this lady in, in Singapore, and she had a, uh, I, I wanted to study them cross-culturally because I wanted to see if they differed in their expectations and what they experienced cross-culturally. So I have like a uh, an appendix just on that. But a lady in Singapore said and I'm reading it just as a, as a rough translation because she was not good at English. Someone spoke to me for a while. I heard, and that voice came from the light. You know what I felt when I saw the light? When I saw that bright light, I felt that someone loved me very much. I had no idea who it was. I was very overwhelmed with the bright light. And while I was there, I felt the love, and that love I never felt before. So the reason why I felt so overwhelmed, I felt that, I felt that only that light ever loved me, and no one does. All the people that know me beat me, hurt me, criticize me, offend me, and many more things. Nobody loved me like that kind of love before. And so the impact, she came out thinking, okay, you know, somebody loves me, somebody that's great up there. And so I have to love my children unconditionally. And she said, my mission is to raise them in a proper manner and to help poor people. And you see people from the communist world who's grown up in a totally naturalist climate, and their thoughts are totally of the world because they think that's all there is. And then a person would have a near-death experience and say, hey, it's not just about me and my education and my, uh, my employment and making a lot of money. I've got to find out how I'm going to help other people. It's a very powerful experience that's powerful on the emotions as well as the mind. <laughs> Well, I'd like to remind people that you're listening to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host right now, and my guest is J. Steve Miller. We're talking about his book, Near-Death Experiences as Evidence of the Existence of God and Heaven, A Brief Introduction in Plain Language. Now, next week, we're going to be talking about marriage some again. Now, not a case about what marriage is, but such as addressing the Supreme Court and such, but I happen to be a strong believer that one of the essential steps in the projects we have to have today is having good marriages and having strong marriages. So today, next week is going to be some marriage enrichment. 
and we're going to have on, if you've ever listened to New Life Live, you might have heard Malin Yorkovich and possibly his wife Kay Yorkovich on there. They are going to be my guest next week. We're going to be talking about the book, How We Love. <clears throat> and it, it's going to be, it's a look at a, how we relate to other people, what our love styles are and such. So we'll be just talking about what we can do to build up our marriages and our relationships next week. So if if you're interested in that, and I hope you are, please do. And by the way, even if you're a singer and not married, marriage enrichment is still something important you need to be paying attention to and supporting and defending and helping your friends who are married with any struggles that they do have. But for now, let's get back to Jay Steve Merrill talking about near-death experiences. Now, we, we could also talk about something interesting that happens with some of these experiences. Blind people, people who have been blind all their lives, in fact, have experiences, and they see people, and they are able to describe them accurately. Yeah, now that's amazing. I mean, you find this in several ways, um, the distinction. People, you're talking about colors. Some people are colorblind. They've never seen colors before. Then they'll go have a near-death experience, and they say, wow, I experienced all these wild colors I've never seen before. Even people who can see colors, as you mentioned earlier, will go, like, like the boy I mentioned that I interviewed in Ukraine, he was, um, he, I asked him, what colors did you see? And he said, I saw this color, this color, this color. I didn't see any of that color. And others will say they've seen colors that they had never seen before on Earth. So it's not like your memory, natural memory, could pull up these colors because you've never laid down any memories of those colors. Where did they come from? And the same thing with blind people. You ask a blind person what, that's blind from birth, what do you see? Do you see black? And they say, no, I don't see anything. I don't see black. Black is a something. I don't see anything. And then some of them, and again, this has been studied, written up in at least one book and also peer-reviewed journals, blind site where here's a person who's blind and yet they die on the operating table or in the hospital and they come back saying, wow, I, I, I could all of a sudden see and I, I didn't know what I was seeing. And I looked down and it took me a while to figure out, wow, that must be what I look like. That's my body. So uh, dramatic, dramatic. People who can't hear are hearing for the first time. So a uh, very dramatic experience in many ways. Mm-hmm. Now, something that seems to also be common with these near-death experiences, and we've already hinted that, is the life transformation that people have. One aspect I don't think you've spoken about yet is these people don't really fear death anymore. Uh, that Well, of course, we're talking about the good experiences here. Yes. They have yep, the bad experiences. One. Some of them might be very afraid. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Sabom actually did some study on this because some people were saying that um, they felt like this was not something of God and not something of the truth because people would come out and uh, end up going away from the church. But in his study, he, he decided to, um, to study this in his patients who had had near-death experiences. And in the this was his second study that he did. But he found that they were going to church. They were getting more spiritual. They were seeking God more as a result of these. Um, their, their spiritual lives were changed. And yes, they, um, 
they, they had a confidence. One of the persons I spoke to that had a near-death experience, and he, he said, oh, it was just so wonderful. He said, I can't wait to go back there. But, but they don't commit suicide because they feel also assured that there's some reason God wants them here mm-hmm. uh, rather than just go on to be in heaven or else God would have left them there. It seems a lot of times we talk about people who are so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good, but C.S. Lewis has also said that the ones who think about heaven the most and what it means are ones who tend to do the most good here on earth. And I think there's a difference because it's not just about, hey, I want to go to heaven because of what I want, you know, getting away from things here and such, but when you've had that experience, it's just like, you know, I want other people to know about this love that I've had, and I want to share it with them. Well, and I can certainly say that that's been my case. I uh, Part of what I do is I've been a caregiver for the past 20 years in one way or another. My first wife uh, died of cancer. I had to take care of her during her demise over a period of years. Had a eight-month-old twins that I began being the primary caregiver for uh, while we were trying to fight the cancer, and uh, they also had older brothers, so I've been through some difficult times in my life, and then to, to care, help take care of my dad, now I'm caring for my grandmother, who will be 110, believe it or not, next month. She'll be a super centenarian. But, but my idea of heaven... Uh, which both comes from, uh, you know, from the Bible, and then from I think it's just made the same thing more real by studying the near-death experiences. Is that I, I kind of constantly ask the question, what really counts? And nobody comes back from their near-death experience saying, oh, well, I've got to pursue going up the corporate ladder more. Never heard that once. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we're talking about what people would expect. To what, what people are already thinking about, you know, thinking about getting ahead, thinking about, you know, being a great person or a great football player. None of them come back saying that what they heard on the other side was reinforcing that those were the main things. The main things were especially loving the people around you. Mm-hmm. When they have a life review, it's all about how did you treat those people around you it's not just a conversation. They would actually see their interactions with people where they hurt someone. They were thoughtless. And the being of light would walk them through it, not in a condemnatory way, but to say, listen, you know, you learn from that. That was good. You learn not to hurt people. And here's a situation where you help people. And so I think these people come back very clearly thinking, I need to help the people around me. So when I'm helping Granny... Uh, I have to go over four times a day and help my mother take care of my grandmother. I don't think that that is some, something that's taking away from my life. I don't begrudge having to spend all that time. I think that's a big part of what life's all about. Mm-hmm. Help, help the people who are hurting. Help the helpless. Help the least of these, Jesus said. And that just reinforced that very much to me. But let me recommend another book that's not mine. A guy named uh, John Burt, I think he was from a uh, technical background and then later uh, became a pastor. But he uh, wrote a book called Imagine Heaven, 
near-death experiences, God's promises, and the exhilarating future that awaits you. This is almost brand new. I think it came out a few months ago. But he did a lot of research on this over the years. But whereas my book is more for the person who's saying, where is the evidence? I want to look at your line of evidence and see if it adds up that these near-death experiences actually give evidence for the existence of God in heaven. He, he is giving evidence, but he's more giving the stories as a base mm -hmm. where I tend to just look at the studies of the stories. So that's another good book to look at it when you talk about the power of believing in heaven. I think that's what John Burke's trying to emphasize with his book. I think something that you said in your book also along these lines is that when these people talked about heaven, they didn't give the traditional Sunday school definition of heaven because I remember when I was in a high school youth group hearing some people ask the question, well, how do I know I won't be bored in heaven? <clears throat> and frankly, if heaven was me the way that it was often described in church when I was growing up, I'd be bored pretty quickly, I think, because you, know, you, you hear this idea of, oh, uh, singing and playing harps and things like that, and I'm like, yeah, okay, um, what exactly am I really looking forward to here and such, but the, the description we get from people, although we're not told, we're told to, uh, they don't give us a furniture of heaven. You think if someone's making this up, they'd make it up from their past experience. They don't do that, do they? No, I mean, it's very different. The things they experience are very different from anything that I would expect. I mean, I just have kind of a vague recollection of, you know, when I think about what's going to happen when I, when I die. Or I think I'm going to appear before God's judgment seat and talk to him a bit about, you know, the Jesus thing and all this, and then I'm going to go into, you know, you think of pearly gates, you have some visuals and all this. So the expectation, even of the person who's stronger in theology, is something different from this. But but I think, and some people would say, well, that's not supposed to be what we're experiencing on the other side. But I think people in their theology tend to try to put things together too tightly. Because the Bible never says this is the only experience of heaven that people will have. In other words, these are people who are not having a final death. Okay, so this may be more of a paradise rather than a heaven. Think of the Old Testament saints, you know. Uh -huh. It's all prior judgment and all this. So they're not even totally dead. They're not hitting it. So where do they go? Well, the Apostle Paul one time spoke of the... Uh, he was caught up in the, what, seventh heaven? Third heaven. Third heaven. I'm sorry I got my numbers wrong. Mm. But I was caught up in the third heaven. Well, what in the world was that? You know? Well, apparently, just what we think of as the judgment Satanist, that's just a, a part of the whole thing. Yeah, that's a significant part. But the Bible never said that this was the only thing going on on the other side, and particularly if we're not even finally dead yet. So expectation-wise, none of us are expecting to die and, and go over into a, you know, look down at our bodies to uh, go through a tunnel. I mean, we've heard about it so much now, maybe you could figure that into an expectation. But back when Moody and others were first interviewing people, they had never heard of near-death experiences. 
So that the whole experience is not something that they would have uh, expected, which, which again makes it very fascinating. You know, there are some people who even look at Paul's account and understand. They think that what happened to him could have been when he got stoned after speaking to the citizens at Lystra and he was left for dead. That that was when he could have had that experience. Well, it could have. It sounds kind of like a near-death experience. And one of the things he talks about is that he said things, he heard things that he could not tell about. And uh, I always thought that that meant that he knew certain things that he was told, "Don't tell anybody this." But I think that could also be translated. That he, that he heard things, but they were so wonderful that he just couldn't express them. It wasn't that he had some ultimatum from God, don't tell anybody this, but it was just things too great to even express. And uh, if, if that's the way it should be translated and interpreted, then that cer certainly goes along with the experience of near-death experience people because they'll say right up front, okay, I'll, I'll try to tell you in human language, but I'm telling you, you can't really express this. Mm -hmm. And two, you're talking about the delight and the fulfillment and the excitement over there. Mm -hmm. Boy, you know, they're talking about, uh, like it talks about in First Corinthians, then you shall see all things clearly as he sees them now. Wow. They just talk about knowledge of things that they could never understand on earth. Mm -hmm. A lot of bad things happen to good people. People come back and they'll say, hey, my... Uh, now I know why I was born into the family I'm born into. Now I know, uh, you know, why these things had to happen to me, why I had cancer. Now they can't come back and express this, but when they were on the other side, they would say, oh, you know, once you get over there, it all makes sense. Mm -hmm. That has implications for the problem of evil, by the way. Very oh, exciting. yeah. Yeah, I, I was with some friends Thursday night, husband's into a project like I am in, said, what do you think the most difficult question you get asked is? And I didn't even hesitate. said, problem of evil. said, well, sure. yeah, I think that's a pretty easy one to answer. I mean, case of, yeah, in intellectually, it is pretty simple. I think that the problem with the problem of evil is it's just so emotionally gripping because there's really not anything simple to say when someone comes to you and says, like, why did God let my child die of cancer? <laughs> Why did the woman I love die in a hideous accident? Why can I not have children? Things of that sort. I mean, there, there aren't any easy answers to give someone in that case. And those stories can be so emotionally gripping. And at the same time, what I've told some people in the midst of suffering is that, believe it or not, one of the things you could give that could help you more than anything else, really, is having good theology. And mm -hmm. hey, what what better schoolhouse could you get in some ways for good theology than getting to be right there where you experience God on a much more personal level? Well, and I think the theological truth that comes home to me is that 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 God is a just God and that when we get to the other side it will all make sense. And I think that's what some of the NDE people are saying, near-death experience. They're saying, well, when I got over there, it, it, everything just made sense that I didn't understand here. So even if I can't explain to somebody, hey, why did I go over to Slovakia? 
trying to do a good work, trying to serve, trying to do well. Then a year after I'm there, after I learned the Slovak language a little bit, you know, I'm working on it, I'm working hard on it. And then my wife's diagnosed with cancer. I lose my whole, you know, my, my life's work that I was doing over there, planned to spend a long time there. Uh, lost my beautiful wife. Um, why, why did that happen? Well, I don't think I have to know the reason that that was allowed. It, I think it's enough to know that there is a reason that it was allowed. And uh, C.S. Lewis put it one time, he said, I think the first words that I'll say when I get to heaven are, of course, because, because then you'll understand, oh, oh, you know, now I know why these things happen. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to remind everyone, you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, Ian, and as I've said many times before, everything we do here is listener-supported. I don't have some big, fancy studio here. I don't have anyone screening calls. That's why we don't take calls anymore. Hopefully, we'll be able to get back to that sometime. I don't have the best equipment here. It's just me, a simple guy, with a computer, a microphone, and a headset. Audacity, MP3, Skype recorder, Skype, and aside from the equipment outside my computer, everything else I've got is just the free basic stuff I can use. And just trying to give you a good projects experience every week. And I, I could really use your support with this. If you want to support Deeper Waters, and I want to thank so many of you who did so with end of the year giving, it was last year something was the best month we've had end of the year giving. But if you want to support us right now, you can go to our site at deeperwaters.ddns.now. Just type in Deeper Waters, Nick Peters, and I'm sure you can find me. And there's a link on the side where it asks if you want to help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. Now, if you click on that, that will take you to Mike Lacona's ministry, Risen Jesus. You've gone to the right place. Make a donation there, and when you contact me, or Mike, or Debbie, or my wife, Audi, and say, hey, I made a donation, I want to go to Nick Peters, I want to go to Deeper Waters, they will make sure that we get your donation. And it will be a tax-deductible donation if you want to set up for monthly giving, that's even better because monthly donors are our strongest foundation and I do hope sometime in the future we'll be able to set up some sort of promotion or something we can do right now it's not in the cards for us but hopefully sometime in the future now if you also want to you can go to Amazon you can find some ebooks I've got for sale that I have either written or co-written including ones that I've written such as um, a Creed for the Ages, which is my look at the Apostles' Creed for today, which I wrote for my church, where we regularly say the Apostles' Creed. Or you can find ones that I've taken part in, like Defining Inerrancy, or Groundless, or Christian Answers to This Generation's Questions. You can also, guys, pay close attention to this one, and hey, girls, pay attention to it also, because you got something you might want to get your guy to do, especially with Valentine's Day coming Everyone, some of you guys might have noticed by now that women tend to like jewelry. And, you know, 
you tend to like the way your women look in jewelry as well. And for all I know, some of you might be thinking this Valentine's Day about popping that question. Well, if you're planning to do that, you can go to the jewelry store from my website with the access code LOVE and make a purchase. And I suppose you want to buy that engagement ring? Well, go there to female jewelers, buy that engagement ring. And here's a sweet deal that comes with it. Wherever you purchase through that, 25% of that will go to deeper workers. I mean, if you, I mean, when I was looking for engagement rings such, I remember some of them cost like a thousand or so. If you bought one of those, deeper wires would get 250 I mean, that is a pretty good deal right there. And also, if you can't make a donation right now, at least do it, please. Share the podcast with others. First off, tell them about, tell us about, our, tell them about our website. And then go to iTunes and leave a positive review there. Uh, I, I get really excited every time I check and go on iTunes, and I see there's a new review there. It's it's the brightest part of the day. Unfortunately, there haven't been any negative reviews so far. I'm hoping those don't come in, but I'm sure someone will say something sometime. But I love getting your positive reviews. So please really consider doing that. Now, Steve, do you have a, a, a ministry, a donation, a cause that you'd like to see people donate, support? No, I, I just have such a, um, from my personal experience, seeing the need for apologetics and people discussing the evidence with others and getting the word out about it, I just say, you know, uh, help Nick out with what he's doing. It's a fantastic website, a fantastic um, uh, way, that, you know, that he's put so much into this with his reading, his reviews, and interviews. Uh, just, just go help him out with what he's doing, and uh, I'm, I'm just giving you an endorsement here, Nick. I, I really appreciate, it. and I, I think people, are, it's easy to forget how much goes into this kind of thing. Because I, I am working on going through school right now, so I have that kind of reading to do, and then I get books sent to me, and I read them long before I interview the guest on the show. Traditionally, so it, this is all preparation. I mean, unless I tell you otherwise, usually, if you hear about a book on this show that I'm interviewing the authors of it, I've read it. I and mean, one clear exception I'll tell you is one I had last month. I have not read all of Craig Keener's commentaries on Acts, despite what some of you might think. I, I, I think you know, that that could take me the rest of my life to do that if I tried it. But for the most part, yes, I do read anything that comes on, and it's a busy job and doing the schoolwork. Yes, that gives me a little extra hurdle, but hey, I like the challenge. It makes things a little bit fun. Now, Steve, let's talk about some objections people make here, though, because that's some of my listening audience might be familiar with. I mean, there are people who talk about this thing like the God helmet, that if you stimulate a certain part of a brain, you can give people really strong experiences, feelings that they're really happy, really love, things of that sort. I mean, maybe that's what's going on in near-death experiences. Maybe people are just having some brain stimulation going on. There's really nothing to it. Well, number one, uh, you've got all this evidence of corroborative events 
where if, if, you, if it's something merely going on in the brain, um, stimulating something there to where you're not really out of your body, then how do people see these instruments that are being used in the surgery? How do they know of relatives who are deceased uh, prior to this? You know, how do they hear these conversations? So uh, I think all those experiences, the corroboration, forces you to rethink anything that's a naturalistic explanation. Uh, secondly, most of these things have been studied, and although you will hear some people say, hey, everything that's happening in a near-death experience is, uh, these things have been replicated in dreams by people passing out, things like this, actually, when you get into the literature and study it yourself, you'll find that these are very different experiences than people having the near-death experience. Like, like one person that wrote a book, a neurologist had written a book on near-death experiences where he tried to explain them naturalistically, and he said, oh, well, well this is like what happens to, like in a study of people passing out. These people were passing out, and they reported experiences of, of talking to people and hearing people talking and, and, and light. And I actually went back to the original study, and yes, people would see some vague lights maybe. Hey, maybe it was lights in the room that they were seeing. Who knows? And they were taught to people, but typically they were talking to people who were already alive. Maybe they felt really good about themselves, and they felt like they were out floating in an ocean. But there was, number one, no consistency among these experiences. And when people tried to make parallels between the near-death experiences and these other experiences, they were very, very different. And so what I'd say is the people who have studied these over the past 30 or 40 years, they've tried to look at these things. Like, let, let's trace these people's oxygen level. Because some people will say it's anoxia. They just didn't have enough oxygen. And look what happens to pilots when they lose their oxygen or whatever. And they've tried to test these theories. And every time they've looked at it, they've said, no, 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 these are very different from a near-death experience. And, and it's very well documented in the literature. What you need to look for are literature reviews in this area. Uh, Penny Sartori, uh, who I think she has her Ph.D. now, she did her dissertation on near-death experiences um, in a hospital setting. And, uh, and she did a great literature review of looking back over all these studies that have really ruled out things like anoxia or a ketamine-like uh, substance that the body releases and, and all these naturalistic explanations. Yeah. Let's go then, before we go to another naturalistic explanation, let's go to one that could be raised by a Christian, because we are Christians who object to this kind of thing. We say, sure. You have a people who go and say they saw Jesus on the other side, but then you also encounter people who say they saw gods of other religions on the other side. And if all these were the same sort of experience, I mean, why would God be supporting this kind of pluralism? Well, again, I would say, number one, if you just try to throw together a whole bunch of experiences that you've seen over the Internet and you're seeing second or third hand you're going to get all kinds of stuff that um, you really have not verified. So I would say, number one, tend to stick with the people who, like doctors, who have done studies of multiple patients, have actually written them up in the literature, 
and uh, not just something that somebody has said. But um, typically, what I see people seeing is, is not somebody that has a Jesus sticker on himself saying, hey, I'm Jesus, or self-identifies as Jesus, but they see a being of light, and, uh, that, and they see angels, which would be messengers, some kind of heavenly beings as well, but then this being of light just seems to be God. It seems to know everything about them and um, uh, has the characteristics of God in his character. So, um, but, uh, okay, so let, let's say you have an American who goes and they, they talk to someone. Well, they're probably going to, they may very well identify this person as Jesus because that's just who, from their theology, they assume that he is. A person from India may see some, uh, they, they see a being of light, or they're actually talking to a being that they're seeing, and, they're, and they're, in their interpretation, they say, oh, that must have been one of my Hindu gods. And so I think when you start talking to these people, often you find that what they're seeing is not somebody who's self-identified as this other god or whatever, but that's their interpretation, and that has to, a distinction has to be made there. Yeah, that's actually the response that Gary Habermas also gives, so yeah, you're in very good company there, because people will interpret this from their cultural background. Most times they say, well, if I saw something, and this is the god, or this must be who I saw in that case. Yeah. That's true. We're, yeah. we're making our own interpretations, and, and that's one reason that the studies of children is, is so unique because they don't have as many things that they haven't don't really have a full world view in their mind, mm -hmm. and so they would just tend to say point blank, "Oh, I just saw this, you know, guy-looking creature, you know, or whatever," and they're not going to say that was you know, Krishna, or that was Jesus, or that was an angel or something. They're just going to describe it plainly, and, and it tends to be a generic type thing at that point. Although in some cases, like um, when, when Sabon first got interested in studying near-death experiences, he, he was at, uh, I believe it was the University of Virginia, and there was a psychiatrist, a prominent psychiatrist uh, named George Ritchie on campus. And um, he was studying... So Moody was studying philosophy and was talking about the experience that Plato related in the Republic of a person who had died and come back to life. Uh, the teacher, I believe this was in graduate school, said, oh, you need to see Dr. George Ritchie. He had one of those experiences. Well, this was the first time Moody ever even knew that anybody in the present day had had some kind of near-death experience. So he went to talk to him. And uh, his experience did have a person who self-identified as the Son of God. So, uh, but that's, I don't know that I've ever seen another experience like that. Usually it seems like people are, are making the, like in uh, some places in the East, they may call it a Yamadut, because a Yamadut is known in their culture as somebody who would come to get you, to take you to the other side. So when they saw a person who was there to be with them, to accompany them to the being of light, they might call that a Yamadu. 
Well, that might be very much the equivalent of what we would call an angel. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, I I think what you've said there it's just it 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 somehow strikes me, especially when you talk about children, because the children are probably going to be ones who are going to be the least and formed in their theology and say, hey, this is just what I saw. And we do have cases where people have some interesting experiences very much outside of the world that leads them to become Christians. It would be interesting to look and see if anyone from another religion did become a Christian after having one of these experiences. Uh, I, I think I've heard of cases like that, but I've not studied them, so I couldn't speak with any authority. Mm-hmm. Now, there are uh, some people who think that uh, what happens in a near-death experience is somehow something like a, a uh, recollection of the birth canal with a, a tunnel and a light at the end and such. And it, couldn't that be what's going on? I just don't see any evidence for that. I mean, it, it's kind of like a, a philosopher saying, hey, let's let's think of what all this could mean. Um, I don't know. To me, it's kind of like if you went in and and talked to a counselor and they said, hey, what you need to do with your marriage is to spend more time together and be nicer to each other. And then you come out of the counseling appointment and say, well, I think what he was really meaning was, and you come up with something that the person never even said. You know what I mean? It's like, it seems like the near-death experience is very self-interpreting in its own right. Uh, you go to the other side, you probably have a conversation with, with someone as to whether it's time to come back or not, whether you need to stay. You... Uh, you have experiences reviewing your life, maybe. What does this mean? I mean, I, none of the people that I've seen who've had a near-death experience would say, you know what, I think this was all about the birth canal experience. Mm-hmm. And that's just the last thing that would come out of their mouth. They'd say, obviously, I was on the other side talking to beings, talking about my life, what I need to do with the rest of my life, and then I came back. Well, that seems to me to be the obvious interpretation of it, that you're really on the other side. It seems to me the burden of proof ought to be on some naturalist to say that it means something totally other than what you experienced. Now, and we, you were talking earlier, you said something about people on LSD and such, for instance. I mean, how do we know this isn't something like that? Maybe people are just out of consciousness versus having very, very vivid hallucinations. Well, I think you could put the experiences side by side and look at them. Uh, there may be somebody who's had LSD that said, oh, I saw a tunnel and went through it, or I thought I was talking to God. Okay, well, you could say the same thing about people's dreams. You could collect a million dreams together, and you could kind of put you together a near-death experience because people have had many different experiences. But the problem is that the near-death experience has certain regular uh, characteristics of it. And a person on an LSD trip, I mean, you could just, as I understand them, and I'm not an expert on uh, LSD, but when they take these drug trips, they have all kinds of different experiences which, which don't seem to fit together. I mean, they'll have a general vague thought of, hey, I've expanded my mind, I've seen things that I could never see before, or 
certain things were brighter and colors were sharper and okay well that's cool and that has a little bit of overlap but but it's more like a hallucination uh, that, that you just have a huge variety of things um, that, that are happening as, as compared to the near-death experience which which has common characteristics and usually if I'm, if I'm correct on this that when people have these LSD experiences they really think they're experiencing things in this world still somehow but when people have these accounts they're they think they're obviously in another world and they're pretty much very much in their right minds the whole time by their their own accounts aren't they well, I've never had the experience before, and I've really not read heavily on them. Uh, but I, but I would say that, uh, for example, Timothy Leary, who is a big proponent of LSD for expanding the mind, who used to teach at Harvard. Um, some people have said that one of the problems with the LSD type experience is that typically they talk big about how oh my mind's been expanded, there's more to life, this was very important to me. But when you look long-term at their lives, it tends to not be that life-changing as far as going out to help other people. And, and Timothy Leary was a prime example of that. Mm. It's like he had the experience, and so what did he want after that? Well, he wanted more drug experiences. Mm-hmm. So he was just taking drugs that seemed like the rest of his life and having experiences. And you look at it, and that seems kind of selfish. Mm. It doesn't seem like it made him into a more to a benevolent person who is willing to go out of his way to help other people and love other people and sacrifice himself for others is like he just became enraptured with the experience itself. Whereas the near-death experiences, what they come out with is not trying to re-experience this. They just just want to say, wow, I've got to make my life count. How am I going to make my life count? Well, I learned that from my life review. I better help other people, love other people, and I'm really fascinated with this being of light, so I want to love and know God as well. Yeah, I find that a fascinating contrast, because one of my concerns when people have experiences is that they tend to make the experience the focus of their life a lot of times. And I think sometimes we get too much in this end of the idea of church like well how do you know that you're on good terms with God well I just feel very good right now I feel very strongly right now well I'm glad you feel strongly but is that really the basis of where your certitude is because then when the experience goes away where what happens but you keep having to have it again it's like you're getting addicted on an experience you're basing everything you have on an experience but with this kind of event, it's like the experience is dominating, it's changing, and you certainly want that experience again. I mean, who wouldn't? But at the same time, you're using that experience to transform other people instead, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think we don't want to get wrapped up in experiences. And as we've already said at the beginning of this interview, we're kind of suspicious of of experiential things anyway as far as emotions mm-hmm. you know people who just emotionally feel this and that 
And, and I think, in contrast, the near-death experience is not so much just a, a feeling that can be interpreted in a lot of ways. It's a very definite empirical experience that they've had, much like the experience that as vivid as the experiences I'm having right now talking to you. Mm-hmm. So um, so that, that that's very different. And, and, I, and I would like to warn people, because I think a lot of reasons that Christians, uh, theologians, sometimes have a problem with such experiences is that sometimes people conclude from this, okay, there's another side, there's a way to communicate with the other side, and then they... And I don't see this happening a lot with near-death experiences, but some people just in life, when they study near-death experiences, they'll think, oh, well, there's a way to communicate. Maybe I can communicate with my loved one. They go into seances, or they mm-hmm. they think, oh, well, I can astral project, or I can I can have this experience through meditation of going to the other side. And, and to me, I, I guess my outcome from this is that... that hey, it's great if you've had a great experience, but that doesn't automatically mean that I should seek this experience or seek to further the experience. In fact, I think it was Huxley who said, who studied LSD and things and participated in some things, he said, you know, once you get your message, hang up. And I think that's pretty good for near-death experiences. Okay, you got your message. Well, now don't seek another experience like that. Just Mm -hmm. go live out what you learn from it that you're supposed to live out. Yeah, I've uh, told people, of course, and you know, one of the things is so many of us today, we have our experiences, and then we go to the Bible, and we interpret the Bible in light of our experiences, when it should be the other way around. We should go to the Bible and say, okay, now what does it say about our experiences? Because, I mean, we can't deny we've had the experiences, but we also shouldn't deny what Scripture says. And if one's going to be the main interpreting authority in our lives, it's going to have to be Scripture. Yeah, I think for the person who's come to the conclusion that Jesus was actually giving us truth from God, well, that's, that's just a very clear revelation that, that tells you how to live. Mm-hmm. You know, go read the Sermon on the Amount. Oh, the Sermon on the Mount, and, and 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 that tells you specifically how to live. Don't go running around listening to people's new, uh, near-death experiences to see how you're supposed to live. Yeah. And, you know, that was their experience, and it mm. may have been very real. But, uh, again, some people lie. Some people are a little bit psychotic and out of touch with reality. And you're going to hear a lot of things from these experiences if you just read stuff over the Internet. That's mm. the right direction to go. You're certainly not going to build your theology solely on that. Well, Steve, you've given a lot of cautions and such. So some people might be having a mixed up, mixed up thought in this thing. You know, it seems like when you're saying this is a good thing, at the same time, it seems like you're saying there's a lot of danger. I think, what, what do you want us to, to have as a walk-away view on near-death experiences? Well, for me, as we talked about being skeptical about things, to me it was a very eye-opening thing to study to say I really think that that the the weight of the evidence, when you weigh the naturalistic explanations with the supernaturalistic explanations, to me at this point in history, at this point in the evidence, it weighs in as something where people have actually experienced the other side. What that means is something very profound. 
that this life is not all there is. There is something else out there, and it's not impersonal, not some impersonal mind, all-embracing mind, but it's something very personal. What that means is we need to be seeking. We need mm-hmm. to be seekers. And if you haven't explored religions, I would highly recommend to you that you study the... Um, uh, I, I teach a class on uh, introduction to religion. Study religion. And, um, I mean, there's just great apologists who've written books um, on, on things like the historicity of the scriptures. Get into those search because if there's something on the other side of life that this is not all there is then there's nothing more important than figuring out our own eternity and, and how we're going to relate to that that would be my positive mm-hmm. seek God seek the other side don't just live as if none of that exists and put it out of your mind mm-hmm. but secondly I'd say don't get caught up in an experience in the sense of don't try to just seek an experience because hey, what if there is good and evil on the other side? How do you know what you're contacting over there? So if God wants to give me an experience, that's fine, and that's his business, but I'm not going to seek it, and I'm surely not going to go to a uh, you know, palm reader or somebody else to try to make contact with the other side, uh, especially if you're, you know, if you're believing in the Scriptures. They're warning against that kind of contact. In fact, there was... Penny Sartori, I mentioned her already. I haven't read her book. She came out with one within the last year, I believe, uh, on her Ph.D. dissertation on near-death experiences. But she did give an experience where somebody had a near-death experience, and while they were over there, they said, don't listen to uh, to so-and-so. It's like the person was dabbling. Somebody had had a relative who died. It's been going to like seances or something to try to get information. And in the near death experience, the person heard them say, Tell so and so, do not listen to those people because they're telling lies. And I think that's just an illustration of how, okay, there is good, there is evil, I believe, on the other side. So don't just go and search experiences to go search for a lost loved one that died a few years ago. My wife died years ago. I don't try mm-hmm. to contact her. You know? Mm-hmm. That stuff's that, 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 that's for the future. That's for when I go there. But uh, don't go off in the wrong direction with it. And just be skeptical of everything. Yeah. Whatever, be skeptical of what we're talking about right now. Uh-huh. Give us a mind and I think we need to use it. Yeah, test everything how fast of that which is good. Good. <laughs> Great. Sums it up right there. Yeah, I hope that's everything that's true as well. Um, what's the uh, worldview implications that we should walk away from? If these stories are real stories, what do you think of a worldview implications? Well, the worldview uh, that, that would most naturally fit with this would be a theistic worldview, which would say, is, uh, uh, Moody said, the most important part of this near-death experience was the meeting with this, with this being of life who is so attractive to them. And so theism fits with that. Oh, there is, it's not just an impersonal mind on the other side. 
there is a real being of light, which I think is very consistent with God. Um, this life is not all there is. It's not just a naturalistic universe. There is another side, and uh, there is a spiritual side to life. Mm -hmm. So I think those are worldview considerations uh, that, that, that fit very well. I'd also say this is just one line of evidence. Mm -hmm. This is just one line of evidence. I, I've been researching lately on the whole cumulative case for God. So you can look at the cosmological argument and say, you know, it, it really looks like that it makes more sense to believe that a personal being created the universe than, than that something came from nothing in some way. Mm-hmm. You put that together with the being of light and say, oh, well, this must be a very powerful being that's out there. Um, hmm, he must have created us for a reason. And then, uh, and you look at other historical evidences. Hey, has God spoken to mankind in the past? Maybe it was through Jesus Christ. We should study the historicity um, uh, of these things. So that's another line of evidence. There's evidence of answered prayer that people have written about, like the book Miracles. So I, I think going back to your question of world view, this is just one little line of evidence. Don't get fascinated with it and forget. We're talking about a whole range of data here that points to uh, spirituality and not just one. Yeah, one other implication that I don't think he mentioned is that this could also show there's pretty good evidence there's an immaterial aspect to man. We're not just purely physical beings because we're capable of seeing things and understanding things apart from the body somehow. Uh, yes, very true. Uh, in fact, one of my relatives that I interviewed about this, uh, I was in the process of writing the book. My mother said, Hey, why don't you tell uh, your relative Bucky here about you know what you're writing on? I said I'm writing on near-death experiences. He said, Oh, I've had three of those. I said, Are you serious? Mm -hmm. And two were kind of near-fatal um, traffic situations. He was out kind of racing in his car, but one of them was in the middle of the night. He uh, woke up uh, or, or just came out of his body. He felt a huge weight on his chest came out of his body, could see a tunnel in the corner of the room, uh, top corner, was looking down at his body, and then eventually came back into his body, woke up in a cold sweat, and then the phone rang saying that his dad had just died uh, suddenly in a hospital that was like, I believe, hours away. They were not in the same town. He was not expecting his dad to die. His dad was in good health as far as he knew, but here at the same time, he knew something that was going on in a distance, the kind of, uh, they call it a shared death experience, and, and how do you make the most sense out of that? Well, that makes sense of the immateriality of other things going on, because in a material world, how could he have known what was going on hundreds of miles away? So, yes, there is a material world. I think this makes sense with there being a mind separate from the body, a spirit being separate from the flesh that can exist without the flesh and that could go on living for eternity. 
Yeah, as the Gary Habermas has said, materialism is a war of that's in danger here. I believe that the more I've read. Uh, it is – and this is just one, again, of many lines of argument that come together to say there's more to life than meets the eye. It's not just the physical. And in fact, when we understand something about quantum physics, we wonder what is material? You know, no wonder it's crumbling on the atomic level and subatomic level. Uh, we, we don't even know if these things are, are, are waves or particles that we're made out of. So, uh, what sense does materialism make when there may be no material ultimately? Hmm. Yeah, that's a question that for a quantum physicist to discuss. I'm very not qualified. Talk about that one. <laughs> we should probably leave it to them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if anyone's interested, the book is Near-Death Experiences as Evidence for the Existence of God in Heaven. A Brief Introduction in Plain Language. I'm looking on Amazon right now. If you want a paperback, it's nine ninety five. But Kindle, you can get a really good price. Kindle is just three ninety nine right now. It's 207 pages worth of information published by Wisdom Creek Press. You know... Steve, if uh, people want to find out more about you and what you're doing, such do you have a blog or a website where people can get in touch with you? I'm not communicating regularly on a blog. You know, if, if you don't have any money, just email me at uh, jstevemiller at gmail dot com, and I'll send I'll gift you a free copy of the uh, ebook. Now, I'm not I'm not doing this for profit. I spent a ton of time doing my research, and uh, if it was if they ever wanted to make money, I'd be doing something else with my life. But uh, that's the letter J, Steve Miller at gmail.com. Just email me and say if you want a copy, and I'll, I'll uh, gift you a free Kindle because uh, I think it's very life-transforming information. Yeah, you but give them a free Kindle copy to be sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And if you like evidence, if you're into the evidence, I would recommend that one. If you're more into the stories... Com kind of combined with the evidence, get Imagine Heaven by John Burke, and I can't give away his books, but uh, but they're on the uh, they're on Amazon as well. And if you are contact Steve, wanting his book, please for for my purposes also let him know that you heard about it on Deeper Waters. I I'd really like to know about that. It gives me some good feedback on how many people are listening to the show and such. <clears throat> Steve, do you have any uh, final message you'd like to leave for Deeper Waters audience? Love God and love people. I think that's what it's all about. Mm. Well, short and sweet. Now, I can mind everyone that next week we're going to have Mallory and Kay Yorkovich coming on talking about how we love. It's going to be good marriage enrichment next week, which I think is incredibly important. And Steve, I'd like to thank you for coming on, and hopefully we'll see you back here again sometime. Thank you so much, Nick. I believe in your ministry. Thanks so much. Thank you. Now I'm Nick Peters and I am signing off.